So for some time, Paul and I have been kind of uh, joking a little bit because we knew that there's a section of Galatians that was coming up that's a little bit awkward in some ways to preach about uh, because there's so much focus put on this Jewish rite of circumcision. And so uh, Paul kept kind of ribbing me about having to, to preach that, and then I go and and uh, have to leave the state and leave him to preach a big chunk of that last week. So I praise God that I can move away from the pulpit for a while and know that there will be competent preaching and, and faithful uh, exposition going on in the pulpit. And I wish I could have been there last week with you all, but uh, he did a very good job. I listened to his sermon this week. But there still is yet a part that we have to deal with that is a little bit strange. So we're going to get to that. I didn't get totally off the hook here as we are in Galatians chapter 5 today. The Apostle Paul has fought hard to protect the churches in Galatia from deception and from error. He has argued diligently that there's only one way to God, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord God intends to redeem lost sinners like us, but He's not just going to let that happen any old way. He's got a specific plan for redemption, and He intends to save us through the grace of Jesus Christ. When we see our sin and we come to terms with the fact that we could never keep the moral laws of God perfectly through our own efforts and through our own willpower, and then our desperation should lead us to the one place we need to be, which is with the judge himself, with the Lord God. Only God has the power to right uh, the, the, the wrongs that we have created in our lives. He can pay the debt that we owe that we cannot afford to pay. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, who accomplished what we could not accomplish by going to the cross and dying for our sins. This Jesus who kept God's law to perfection and therefore did not deserve to die but willingly gave His life for ours. When we put our faith in Him, all of our sin is washed away. And we can now live free from the burden of this law that we could never keep. So Paul has fought very hard to make these things clear to the Galatians. But the fighting is not yet over. Last week, Paul ended with verse 6 of chapter 5, where the Apostle says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circ uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so the last two chapters of the Galatian letter is going to give us some great practical application. It's going to show us how to live out our faith in love as we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants to be sure that that he shows the Galatians that being free from the law of Moses doesn't mean that they can live according to their sinful temptations, according to the sin nature that afflicts every human being, but that as new creations redefined in Jesus Christ, that Christians are to live according to what God has redeemed us to be. And we do that now because of the grace that has radically transformed us. But before we get into that practical section, those two chapters that really that really tackle how to live this out in our lives. Paul's going to briefly return to address the threat of the false teachers who are trying to convince these Galatians that grace is not enough to save a person. That salvation needs to come from some combination of the work of Jesus plus living according to the Old Testament law of Moses. And so we are in Galatians chapter 5. We're starting with verse 7 and reading through to verse 12 today. The Apostle Paul addresses the churches in Galatia and says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The Apostle Paul starts this section by reflecting back on the point where the Galatians, who had seemed to be doing so well in their faith as a young church, they were growing and maturing, but somewhere along the line they got off track. They were distracted by the false teachings of these rogue evangelists who were modifying the gospel of grace. To illustrate what the Galatians were going through, Paul equates the Christian life to running in a race. He says in verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In other words, who has been getting in the way of the race you're trying to run? Who has been interfering with your spiritual progress and trying to trip you up? This metaphor of the Christian life as a race to be run is a metaphor that Paul utilizes in several of his letters to the churches in the New Testament. We see it probably in most great detail in the letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter. Chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. If you'd like to uh, switch there in your Bible, you can. Otherwise, I'll have it uh, up on the screen for you. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what Paul is clearly illustrating here for us is that the Christian life is not like a leisurely stroll where we just meander here and there through each day not knowing what the next day brings with several sidetracks taken and many scenic routes experienced. That's not really an accurate description of what the Christian life should be like. Many people try to approach the Christian life in that way, but there's great danger in doing so. That kind of wandering about is actually more accurately a characterization of our life before we were found in Christ. We didn't know what the truth was. So we entertained many different ideas of what life was about. We tried a little of this and got distracted by a little of that. We poured our time and effort into this philosophy for a while and then took this approach to life and this strategy for living. We tried a little of this and a little of that, never knowing exactly what the truth was before we came to Christ. At times we might have been focused on one thing in particular. We might have even been convinced that this is, the, this is the secret, this is the way to live life. But inevitably over time, each of those different attempts at solving life's problems on our own comes up short. And we need something different, something new, something improved to distract us and to take our attention. <clears throat> but having found Christ, things have changed radically for us. We're no longer wanderers, are we? We're no longer filling out our itinerary as we go. We know what we are here for. We know what we are heading to. And we have been shown a path that we are supposed to travel. So like a runner who is aware of the course of their race, 
We should press on diligently. We should focus our efforts. We should run hard because life is not about wandering once you have Jesus Christ. This is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And we can become distracted just as the Galatian church has shown its distraction here in this book. If we're going to run well, it's going to take self-discipline. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, says the Apostle Paul. He goes on to say, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. So as we run this race, if we want to do that well, we need to be prepared to battle our temptation. When our flesh wants to do what is un unappealing to the Lord God, which is unacceptable to the Spirit, then we've got to learn to stand against our own desires. That we've got to fight back against those tendencies which are unholy and unrighteous. We need to be self-disciplined in the way that we order our days. Especially in the last two weeks. If we've learned nothing, we've learned that this life here on earth is not forever. And it can be taken away from you in a moment's notice. And so we need to be diligent about the time that God has afforded to us. Are we living in such a way that we're running diligently, that we know where we're headed and we know where we want to end up? Are we ordering our days in such a way that we'll be exercising our faith regularly, that we'll be seeking the Lord God in prayer, that we'll be studying His Word diligently so that when something distraction comes and tries to entangle us and hinder us in our race, that we'll be able to identify it straight away because we've been in the Word of God, because we've been in prayer, and we're empowered by the Spirit which fills us. So it's going to take some self-discipline. We've got to learn to say no to our sin nature and say yes to Christ. It's also going to take some direction. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who is beating the air. What he's trying to explain to them is that he's got goals now as a Christian. He's got things he wants to see happen in his life. He is intentionally pursuing the Lord God so that he might grow in maturity, so that things of the world might be pruned out of his life and the things of heaven might be infused into him. He is desiring to grow, and so then he is planning to grow. He is taking steps to become more Christ-like. Are we diligent in having a directed life, a life that has purpose, a life that has goals and meaning? I hope that this new year, as you've thought about ways you might want to improve upon your life, and, and perhaps some of you have made some New Year's resolutions, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to grow in some way, I pray that more than anything, more than losing 10 pounds from here, or more than gaining a new skill in life, or more than becoming more disciplined with your finances, that you would want to grow in your knowledge and appreciation of Jesus Christ, the one who saved you. That you would want to have a more intimate walk with Him. That He wouldn't be like an acquaintance to you, that He would be like your very best friend. That you don't walk through a single day without communicating with this God who loves you and has redeemed you. So we need self-discipline. We need direction. We also need determination. Because this is a long road, this Christian walk. He says, so run that you may obtain the prize. The Apostle Paul wants our, our running to be purposeful. He wants us to be determined and committed to this exercise, even though it is not easy. The most, one of the most frequently given commands in the New Testament is to press on, to persevere, to endure. And this Christian life as a race is going to be hard at times. It's not going to be a stroll through the park. It's going to be difficult, so we must have the determination to continue going when others would like to hinder us. 
or when the circumstances of this world might hinder our progress. We must press on. We must push forward. And finally, this race, this Christian marathon, is going to take the right motivation. As followers of Jesus Christ, redeemed unto God, our motivation goes much beyond simple competition. The runners in the Olympics, they competed for a perishable prize. It says they compared they competed for a wreath which perishes. What they're talking about there was the literal prize in the original Olympics games was not a golden medallion or a bronze medallion. It was a wreath of olive branches woven together that were placed onto the head of the one who came in first in their discipline. Now that wreath was an accomplishment and it was something to be praised and heralded, but how long did that wreath last? It was physically a wreath which would wither and, and perish over time. But it was also an, an accolade, an accomplishment that would soon be replaced by the next faster guy, the next person who would w- win the race. Those kudos did not last very long. And such are the rewards of this life. If we seek after the pleasures of this world, we might find a little happiness in them, but they do not satisfy us in the long term. Our motivation must be much more than just the simple blessings of life. We must be motivated by the upward call of Christ Jesus, our Lord, for whom we run and by whose strength we persevere. Self-discipline, direction, determination, and motivation. These are all essential elements of the race that we are running for the Lord God. And every race that is to be run will have rules, won't it? It will have boundaries. If one doesn't run according to the rules, they may find themselves disqualified. So Paul here is is not saying that we have to perform spiritually to be loved by God, that we must run faster than our neighbors in order to be loved and approved of by God. Rather, what Paul is saying is that we need to make sure that we're operating under the true gospel that he has provided for us, that we are living a, a spiritual life that is defined by the boundaries that God gives to us in his word. If we try to run by our own rules, if we try to live our faith out to Christ under our own standards and by our own uh, methods, then we will not complete, complete the race that we have been set upon to run. Paul alludes to this idea of the Christian life as a race earlier in Galatians. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says that he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation and set before them, the other apostles, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. See, Paul had heard that there was some chatter about whether or not the the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles was a real gospel. So Paul had gone to Jerusalem and he had met with the other apostles, Peter included, to compare notes to see if the gospel he was teaching was in line with the orthodox gospel that they were teaching. And sure enough, they were preaching the same redemption by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is not impervious to being hindered also, and so he wants to make sure that he is running the race according to the standards that his God has given to him. If he were to have been found to be an error, then he would have willingly adapted to the real gospel. He would have changed and made adjustments so that he might stay on course according to God's way and God's will. So we might sometimes become distracted because of the way we see things, the way we interpret things. But it's also possible that we can be hindered by an outside force. See how the writer of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded 
by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So there are these weights, that, these sins that cling so closely to us. The Galatians had started to run their race and they began running well. But lately these false teachers had come and tried to trip them up, tried to hinder them from running well by confusing them with this false gospel, this half-truth that from the outside was coming to try to hinder these individuals that wanted to run faithfully for the Lord. You might note as Paul continues to use this runner's language that the kind of running that he is talking about in his metaphor describes specifically marathons rather than sprints. He's looking at a type of running that isn't over in a short burst, but is rather a, 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 an ongoing, trudging, difficult exercise over a long period of time. Have you ever seen a, a sticker like this on the back of someone's car? What does 26.2 stand for? Anybody know? It's a marathon, right? It stands for 26.2 miles, which is the, uh, the English measurement equivalent of how long it takes to run the classic Greek Olympic marathon. And those who have gone through the heartache and the pain of training themselves to be able to run 26.2 miles, which when you think about it, is a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? And you talk to doctors, it is one of the worst things you can do to your body physically. You have to train your body to respond to that kind of running or else you will break down. There is diet that you have to change. You have to be careful with what you eat. You have to become extremely hydrated so that in the course of the four or five hours or however long it takes you to run those 26 miles that you won't sweat out all of your, your, your water, your, your electrolytes. You've got to build up to a 26 mile run. You can't just decide one day that that's what you want to do and go out and do it or your feet will fall off. So th these marathons are, are, are serious business. They're, they're, you've got to be into it for the long haul. No one has ever run a marathon on accident or casually. It doesn't happen. So when we think about the Christian life as this long, drawn-out exercise that is, by its very definition, going to have with it hurt and pain. And it's going to leave us sore at times. How do we benefit from looking at our faith from this perspective? We see that from this metaphor, to endure and to press on in the marathon of faith, we need to identify that which could hinder us, that which can hold us up, and learn how to overcome those hindrances. Some of them will be from the outside. If you're running a marathon and it begins to rain, that's, that's a new set of challenges you've got to face. They can come from the inside, whether that be cramping, whether that be mentally thinking, I just don't think I have enough strength to get through this whole race. There are several things that can hinder a runner. And likewise, there are several things that can hinder a man or woman who decides to run through this life in faith, following after what the Lord has called for them. Verse 8 of Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul has written, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. These Galatians had a roadblock in the way. And Paul wanted to make it very clear that this gospel that was being introduced, that was different than the gospel that established that church, was not from Him who called them to faith. It was not coming from the Lord God Himself. Though these men used much spiritual language, though these men pointed to the heritage of Judaism as proof that the people should be 
following the laws of Moses, and much of what they said sounded good, it was not from the Lord God. And if it wasn't from God, who was it from? None other than the enemy of God, the one who would love to see us fall short of the goals that God has set for us. There is an enemy who wants to trip us up and keep us from being the men and women that we want to be in Christ. We are competing against not one another, but against the spiritual force of darkness that does not want to see Jesus glorified in our lives. We will face hindrances like this. Paul himself faced hindrances like this, whereby the enemy tried to keep him from completing the task that God had set before him. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, we read from the mouth of Paul, We wanted to come to you, to the Thessalonians. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. The threat of hindrance is not necessarily a sign that you're doing something wrong. It could be a sign that you're running faithfully because you have an enemy that does not want you to run faithfully. You have an enemy that would love to see you fall flat on your face and lose heart and give up this race that God has put before you. So we must be aware of this danger. We must be able and equipped to identify it so that we do not allow it to trip up our feet and keep us short of our goal. To describe the specific type of hindrance that these false teachers in Galatia represented, Paul draws upon another uh, metaphor. He likens them to the yeast that is found in leavened bread. Now there's two different kinds of bread essentially. You have bread that rises and you have bread that stays flat. If you put yeast into dough, then over time that yeast will interact with the protein molecules in that that, uh, dough and it will cause it to swell and rise. Uh, The Hebrew people saw leaven or yeast as a a symbol of sin because of the way that a little bit of yeast would work its way through a whole lump of dough to affect the whole loaf of bread. They looked back to their heritage, to the time of God redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. We remember it as the Passover. When God had declared that Pharaoh was to let his people go after several plagues were administered to the Egyptians, Finally, the Pharaoh conceded. God knew that his hard heart would not allow him to stay complicit with the Lord for long, and so he tells his people that they need to rush in their preparations to get ready to go. He says, make for yourself bread for the road, but do not add yeast to that bread, because there will be no time for it to rise. Make unleavened bread. You can make that quicker, and you'll be ready for this journey that's before, before you. So those who obeyed did not add yeast. And from that day forward, every year when they would look back on that that redemption from slavery, they would celebrate what came to be known as the Passover. And there wasn't to be any yeast in the houses of the Hebrews during that week as a symbol of their obedience to the law of God. These false teachers were likened to leaven, to a little bit of yeast that could work its way into one or two of the people in Galatia. And before you know it, that false doctrine is beginning to spread. It's beginning to affect whole families. It's beginning to impact neighborhoods. And now you've got a serious problem on your hand because the people of God who have been supposedly redeemed by grace are now following this doctrine which gives glory to the works of man rather than to the work of Jesus Christ. What made these particular false teachers leaven? Friends, when we interact with our brothers and sisters in church, we must be realistic and know that not everything will be something we, uh, we won't agree on everything that we read about in the Word of God. 
Different Christians see the scripture with different historical backgrounds through different interpretive lenses. So there will be things that we as Christians, though we are unified in Christ, don't necessarily agree on 100%. How do we tell the difference between a brother who loves the Lord like we do but believes slightly differently on secondary things? How do we tell the difference between that and a teacher who is teaching something that is false and dangerous that threatens the health and the unity of the church? The variations taught by these Judaizers challenge the fundamental plan that God has for salvation. This plan, which we call the gospel, is not some obscure teaching in Scripture. It's not something alluded to in passing. It is the fundamental core of salvation that is communicated over and over again in the New Testament. When a brother in Christ has a differing view on, on something secondary, such as the use and the extent of the spiritual gifts, you're probably familiar with the fact that many churches still practice the sign gifts, speaking of tongues, prophecy, some say healing. There are other churches that aren't quite so sure that those gifts are still for today. They are spoken of in the New Testament without a doubt, but they are spoken of in enough variation and with enough left unsaid that there is room among believers to have different views of the doctrine of how spiritual gifts play out in the lives of believers. We must give one another a measure of grace in regards to how we interpret those passages of Scripture. You've got to recognize that if interpreting things like that in slightly different ways does not threaten the integrity of the gospel or paint the person of God in an inaccurate light, then we need to make room for that. But even secondary things can at times lead to greater divisions. There are those among the Pentecostal churches that teach that a person has to essentially be saved two times. That when you give your life to Christ, that your sin is washed away and you're made pure, but you don't receive the Holy Spirit until you exercise the sign gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, these kind of outward symbolic signs of the presence of God in a supernatural way. Now, does the Scripture say you need to exercise the sign gifts in order to prove that you have the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. In fact, the Word of God says the opposite, that the Holy Spirit is for every believer. And that every believer will have spiritual gifts, but that those spiritual gifts will differ from one person to another. So we need to keep our eyes wide open as we try to discern what is a kind of difference in doctrine that needs to be confronted and addressed. That happens when it, it threatens the integrity of the gospel and the unity of God's believers. And which issues can remain secondary that we can agree to disagree on and live in unity even though our doctrine is not 100% the same in those secondary measures. These individuals who were coming into Galatia were poisoning the gospel of salvation by changing fundamentally the requirements a person needed to meet in order to be saved. Christ says, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. These, Gal these Galatian false teachers were saying, call on the name of the Lord and then keep all the commandments of the Old Testament. Clearly, this is a difference worth confronting and a difference that caused Paul enough concern that he felt compelled to defend his brothers and sisters in Galatia from it. But Paul is not despairing over this problem. He is not hopeless. In fact, we see in verse 10 that Paul expresses confidence in two things. First of all, Paul has confidence that the Galatians will adapt no other view than the true gospel which he is reinforcing in this letter that he writes to them. We should have faith as preachers of the true gospel. We should have faith that when we preach the truth and we do it boldly and with confidence, 
that God will use that right teaching to get to the hearts of those who are truly His. Now, we don't know those who are called after God's will and of His way. We don't know those who are elect. So we preach the truth to everyone and we let God do what He will with that. But we should not preach the truth with great fear, hoping and praying that maybe somebody will be saved. Rather, we should be preaching the truth with confidence, knowing that the Lord God is going to save those whom He has set apart. Paul has confidence that the Galatians will not falter, will not fall, and that that church will remain a faithful church, and that they will deal with these false teachers in the appropriate ways. Paul also has confidence that the one who hinders them, this false teacher who's bringing these Gospels that are a twisting of the real Gospel, will be punished for it eventually. Ultimately, that punishment is the responsibility of God Himself. If you read through the book of James, you'll find a passage of Scripture where we are warned not to let many people become teachers of the true Gospel. And the reason that warning bears weight is because when we teach the true Gospel, we are held accountable for the things that we present to the people. Those who teach falsehood, even if they're not intending to teach it falsely, will answer to the God of glory because He loves His church. Friend, as much as you love God's church, God loves His church more. He calls the church His bride. And He's not going to put up with anybody corrupting the church through false teachings and wrong gospels. So Paul has great confidence that the one who hinders these Galatians, even if there's more than one, if there's many, that they will be dealt with by the hand of God in due time. Verse 11 then goes on to talk about the fact that perhaps because of this great responsibility that falls onto the shoulders of those who teach the gospel, because there's so much responsibility in teaching the truth accurately according to the scripture, Paul wanted to clarify a misconception that was being circulated by some people in the church in Galatia. So there's apparently a false report that Paul himself was pro-circumcision, which seems crazy because Paul has spent the first two chapters of this letter defending his authority as, a, as a, an apostle because others were saying that his word didn't mean anything. But some were saying that Paul is on our side when we talk about this pro-circumcision, that we talk about this gospel of grace plus works. It's not hard to see how the enemy, the deceiver, could try to confuse people into thinking that Paul was on board. He was not there to defend himself. So through these letters, he had to show them clearly that he was not in the party of the circumcision. Most likely, this misconception stemmed from uh, an, uh, an activity that we have recorded in, in the book of Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas and a few others were on mission journey. They were sharing the gospel in different regions and they came upon a place where they met a man named Timothy. And Timothy was an interesting young man, a faithful young man. His mother was a devout Jew who had given her life to Jesus Christ. His grandmother also was a believer in the true church, but his father was a Greek. So he was not considered culturally pure in a Jewish sense. When he was born on the eighth day, he was not circumcised as a traditional Jewish boy would have been circumcised. Though he did keep the, the, the Jewish um, laws that his mother taught him growing up. So this created a problem with the mission that Paul and Barnabas and Timothy were on as he joined them because they did most of their ministry to begin with in the synagogues. And then once the Jews there had either received or rejected the true gospel, they would move into the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. Timothy, being uncircumcised, would not have been allowed into the synagogues. So the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 
recommends to young Timothy that he be circumcised in order that their mission to the Jews and the Gentiles not be hindered by anything cultural. Remember Paul's statement in Galatians 5.6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So it didn't really matter to God whether Timothy was circumcised or not. But because Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and the other men were so intent on reaching the Jews, he suggested that Timothy become circumcised so it would not be a hindrance to their ministry in the synagogues. And Timothy loved the gospel so dearly as well that he capitulated and said yes to that request. Paul's persecution among Jewish communities was evidence enough that he had not embraced such a compromised position. He has already re revealed to us in the earlier chapters that he has been stoned, he has been uh, shipwrecked, that people have tried to murder him. Why? Because the gospel that he preached was a departure in some ways from the law. And so it was offensive to the Jews who heard it preached to them. Do you remember uh, Stephen, the first martyr killed in the New Testament? We read about him in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. You might be interested to go back and read his story again. He was not stoned because he believed in Jesus. Specifically, Acts chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, reveals why the Hebrew people stoned Stephen. It says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place, speaking of the temple, and of the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. See what they were concerned about? They were concerned about their traditions changing. They were concerned about losing this, this powerful law that had given them a framework by which they had risen above other Jews and become the spiritual leaders of their community. And so they were prone to fight back against the early church because they saw it as a threat to their authority and their religious esteem. If Jesus believed and preached this grace plus work salvation, as some were claiming, if Paul did, then that would then what would have his opponents been offended by? If he was on board with this idea of faith plus works, then the Jews would not have been opposed to him. They would not have been offended by his gospel. But the truth of the matter was they were offended because Paul preached the truth. He preached salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, according to his grace alone. And we arrive at the end of this passage of Scripture where Paul uses some very strong language to close out this section. His harsh tone should give us an idea of just how important this topic was. And you might be thinking, we've talked a lot about this justification by grace. Why are we spending so much time on it? We're spending so much time on it because it was critical to Paul. It was critical to the church in Galatia. It should be critical to us as well. So we see in verse 12 where he's describing these false teachers. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. At the risk of sounding crude, I need to take a moment to explain what the Apostle Paul means here by this. These false teachers were a serious problem. They were doing harm. They were doing more than just attacking Paul's character. They were attacking the very heart of the gospel. By trying to put people back under the burden of the law, they were robbing Jesus of the glory that he had earned by paying for all our sins on the cross. They were taking glory away from Jesus, who was the only one who was able to keep the law perfectly, and trying to put it on those who claimed that they were keeping the law of, G uh, of, of Moses by being faithful to all the commands of Scripture. 
Jesus was the only one who owed no debt to God. Jesus was the only one who could pay our debt. And so this false doctrine undermined the grace that is the foundation for true forgiveness in God. And it was not enough for these Judaizers to believe wrong things themselves. They were trying to reproduce their crooked beliefs in the Galatians. They were trying to evangelize others to this lie. And so Paul's very serious when he says that he wishes that these false teachers would emasculate themselves. The physical symbolic act of circumcision involved a physical sign that a man had agreed to the covenant of the law of Moses by the removal of their foreskin. Uh, this was, as you studied last week, uh, a sign that that person would see every day of their life reminding them that they belonged to Yahweh, the true God, and that they were obligated to keep the whole law because of their commitment to that covenant. Paul suggests that the Galatians would benefit if these false teachers would go one step further and castrate themselves, thus rendering themselves unable to reproduce, if you will, their false ideas in others. So Paul is not making light of the situation. He's not being crude to get a rise or to get a laugh out of the people that he's writing to. There is a time and a place for hard words. And this very serious threat to his dear friends was no laughing matter. If these men were successful in turning away people from the true gospel and convincing them that they had to keep laws in order to earn their way into heaven, then they would be neutering the chances of those Galatians to be saved by grace. Paul won't stand for that. Just as Jesus said, it is better to cast your right eye out from you if it causes you to sin. Paul similarly suggests that these deceivers cast out their own ability to reproduce so that their lives would stop with them. Not all believers who hold different beliefs than you are like these men who are described as leaven. They're not all deceivers and false prophets. But leaven does exist. False teachers are a real problem. They're a serious hindrance to the race of those true believers who want to run in honor of Christ. And it often looks a lot like true belief on the surface what these false teachers have to share. So friends, we need to learn to protect ourselves. We need to keep our eyes wide open to the fact that there are those who would love to preach you something that looks good on the surface but is a twisting and a distortion of what is true. We need to learn to identify the warning signs that what a person teaches about is more than just a debatable secondary point of Scripture. We need to see when it is attacking the foundation of, of doctrinal truth that is essential to the Christian identity. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. By pursuing Him, by loving Him with our whole heart, we are far more ready to identify when somebody else threatens the integrity of who He is and what He has done for us. We do these things that we may run the race and run it without hindrance. Now, I've never run a, a marathon myself, but I have run a couple of half marathons because I'm not very intelligent, and uh, I thought it would be fun to try, to try to do something I'd never done before. So I didn't really train much. I didn't get myself ready for it, but I slogged through a few of these races. Now, if you go online and you try to look up uh, this sport, which one person I saw wearing a, a T-shirt during the last half marathon I run, it says, our sport is what your sport does for punishment, which means if you're a football player and you don't do well, what does the coach make you do? Run. But that's all that running is, is punishment over and over again. So these people realize that their, their sport is difficult. It's hard on the body. It's difficult to stay motivated to complete such a task as running a half marathon or a full marathon. And so if you go to sign up for one of these marathons, you'll see that many of them try very hard to provide the motivation for you to keep running and to finish the race. So it's, it's not just 
the Antioch Marathon anymore. It's something like the Rock and Roll Half Marathon. I've ran one of those. The Rock and Roll Half Marathon has every mile strategically placed a band playing upbeat, encouraging music. So that as you're running and you start to run out of energy and steam and you want to give up, you hear that noise from far off and you want to hear which band is playing. And so you, you run harder and you get to that next, that next station, that next point, and, and it gives you inspiration to go on to the next spot. There's a, a run called the Color Run where you run this race in a white t-shirt. And throughout the course of the race, volunteers will run up and throw little bundles of color dye onto you. And it, the powder hits you and it stains your shirt. And at the end of your race, you get to go home with this shirt that's colorful and fun. And it's, it's just a way to, to motivate you because who really wants to just run, right? So they've got these motivators built into the races. Maybe the most strategic one that I've seen is the Nike Women's Half Marathon, which you have to get on a, a list to try to uh, to get uh, approved for. And at the end of that race, after you've run your 13.1 miles, there is a firefighter in a tuxedo waiting there with a Tiffany's bracelet for you as a reward for your efforts. Now that's motivation, right, ladies? It's not motivation for me, but I'm sure it's motivation for you. We are about to enjoy the sacrament of communion. And in some ways, God has given us this wonderful exercise as a motivator for us. God knows that the Christian life in many ways is like a marathon. It's a long race. And there are many opportunities along the way to become discouraged and to lose track of what really matters. God knows that you need to be constantly motivated. And so he has commanded us as his church to regularly engage in this practice whereby, whereby we look at these two elements, the bread and the juice, and see how they point back to this wonderful gift of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We try to do this at least once a month because by taking of these elements, we remember just how helpless we are to save ourselves. We remember that if it wasn't for faith in Jesus Christ, there would be no access for us to God the Father. We would still be in our sins and we would still owe a tremendous debt to the great judge of the universe. But as we think about these elements and we think about what they stand for, we're reminded of the great abundant love that God has shown to us that He would not require us to work our way back to Him through keeping of the law, but would instead, through His great generosity, make a way for us to be His by suffering in our place. This ancient practice is a gift from the Lord to every committed believer. You don't have to be a member of First Family Church uh, to partake of these elements here, but you do need to be a member of the universal church. What that means is that when you look back at your spiritual history, when you look back at, at the days that you spent thinking about and, and considering God, that at one point you can look back, and you might not know the exact day, but you can look back at a time in your life when you came to see how serious your sin really is. God revealed to you that your sin is not just a, a little something that you try to hide from others and that makes life less enjoyable but isn't really a big deal. God revealed to you that your sin is actually against, first and foremost, God himself, the giver of life. And so the wages, the consequences of that sin that you commit against him is literally death. And you've at some point in your life realized that there is no amount of hard labor that you could do, no amount of spiritual work that you could accomplish that would erase your sins and make you right before the Lord God. In that moment, in that time in life, in that season, you saw that God, because of His great love for you, has sent His Son Jesus to do what you could not do, to live a perfect, spotless life that owed no debt to God, 
so that he might give that life as a sacrifice in place of our broken and sinful lives on the cross. And that in raising on the third day, he showed his power over sin and death so that anyone who might trust in him and receive that free gift of grace would have their sin washed away forever and might have a new identity in Christ Jesus. So if you believe those things that I just said, if you know that you're a sinner and that through Jesus Christ you have forgiveness of your sins, if you have given your life to him and he is now your king and your Lord, then you can partake of these elements today. We ask that you do it in a reverent manner, uh, that you take these things seriously and that you contemplate the life that you're living to the Lord God. Uh, if you are not a believer, please just watch and observe as people take of these elements today. This is a ritual that's been going on for literally 2,000 years of God's church. And so um, if you are a believer today, uh, we encourage you to spend some time in prayer. In just a minute, we're going to take some time to pray silently. Before we do that, we're going to call our band to come forward. They're going to take of the elements so that they'll be prepared um, to enjoy this communion with us. Uh, as they do that, I want to explain to you what these elements represent. The bread that we're going to be partaking of today, as I mentioned earlier, is unleavened bread. It has no yeast in it. It is made this way for a purpose. It is made because it represents the body of Jesus Christ, in whom there was no sin. Jesus humbled himself and took up the form of a servant, coming in human flesh to live the perfect life that we could, could not live. And so as we partake of this bread, we recognize the first sacrifice that Jesus made, that he left his throne on high and humbled himself to come and dwell with us in this sinful and broken world. He did this out of love and because he is perfectly unified with the Father and the Spirit and this is their plan for redemption. The juice that we partake of is also symbolic. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. As we partake of this juice, we remember the fact that Jesus was willing to be whipped, that he wore a crown of thorns upon his head, that his hands and his feet were literally staked to a wooden beam so that he might be lifted up in a shameful way before all people, bearing the burden of the sins of all who trust in him. And so these different elements remind us of the powerful work that Jesus Christ enacted to redeem us. And so we want to be thankful for this work. We want to remember the power of this work, that if you're struggling with a sin today, God can overcome it in your life. Just as Paul was confident that the Galatians would not fall for this false doctrine that was being preached, that they would receive no other gospel but the true gospel. Have faith that your God, through Jesus Christ, will work out your sins from your life, will purge you from these things that have been hindering you. Through His strength alone, we can be set right. So as we pray, let us ask that the Lord would reveal to us any wicked way that, it, that has been hidden from us, that we haven't thought to confess before Him. And let us rejoice in our private prayer with God that He is willing and faithful to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness when we come to Him with a repentant heart. So let's just spend a few moments in silent prayer. I'm not going to lead you in this prayer, but I will conclude the prayer uh, with a prayer thanking God for these elements. So let's bow our heads in a time of quiet prayer.